on, uh, on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, on the door of the church, the castle church there in Wittenberg in Germany, he ignited a movement that would change the church and really the history of the world forever. And most of us know a little bit about the Protestant Reformation. I talk about it a fair amount um, because I want us to understand church history. I want us to understand our history. But relatively few people seem to understand either the, either the evils from which the Reformation delivered us or the victories and even really blessings that the Reformation won for us. So in order to kind of help us more deeply appreciate the Reformation and how it really transformed nearly everything that we believe, everything that we do as Christians, um, particularly this morning as we worship, I think it'll be beneficial to to know what the church was like in those earlier centuries leading up to that fall day in Germany when a Roman Catholic friar uh, nailed his list of discussion topics to that door. The church before the... So allow me to give you just a brief history lesson, uh, if you will indulge me for a moment. The church before the Reformation was essentially a church without the Bible. The people and even most of the priests knew hardly anything about God's Word. Uh, Most were either illiterate or mostly illiterate, Um, even the priests. They didn't have the Bible in their own languages since it was only printed in Latin, and even then it was scarcely available. Uh, Whole towns would not have one copy of the Scriptures often. So it was hard for people to know what was actually in the Bible. On top of that, the Mass was, was spoken in Latin, so the people didn't even understand what was being said in church anyway. So going to church did not provide any opportunities for learning the Bible. Preaching was not an every Sunday event. Uh, some have said that preaching should take place once a quarter, and even then it was not insisted upon. Hugh Latimer, who was an English bishop and uh, really a martyr, in the early days of the Reformation, he pointed out that that while the Mass was never left unsaid on a single Sunday, sermons might be omitted for 20 Sundays in a row. In fact, because of the preaching ministries of some of the men who came before Martin Luther, men like Peter Waldo, um, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, and Savannah Rolla, to preach in the 1500s, to preach very much especially, was to raise the suspicion of being a heretic. Before the Reformation, the concept of the Christian ministry was, and the word is sacerdotal. Uh, It means that every minister was considered to be a sacrificing priest, much like the priests of the Old Testament. And so in the Mass, which is the communion service in the Catholic Church, It was believed that the priest transforms the the bread and the wine into Christ's actual body and blood. And even to this day, every time the Mass is celebrated, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ is believed to be sacrificed over again and again and again. And so churches would have altars. And the altar would be the central piece of the kind of the religious furniture in the sanctuary. 
Because the Mass, the, the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving, the communion, was the central means of salvation for the people. We don't have an altar in this church because there's no longer a need for a sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8, 9 and 10 says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, and he's talking about the uh, Jewish priests. Every priest stands daily at his, service, uh, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we did here last week, we're not sacrificing him over and over again. Instead, we're remembering that Christ uh, really, we're remembering what Christ did for us through the one time that he gave himself up for us. If Christ needs to be sacrificed over and over again through the Mass, then his sacrificial death on the cross was not sufficient. And so when the Reformers came to understand this, they, fairly quickly, transformed the, the primary role of the clergyman from priest to preacher. The Reformers taught that the primary business of every Christian minister was to preach the word and to be diligent in, in prayer and reading the scriptures. This is why the altar has been replaced by the Lord's table and the pulpit is even central in the room, even over the table. It shows the centrality of God's word in our worship as a Protestant Reformation church. So our building here is very simple. In fact, it, it looks like a barn from the outside, and that's okay. Um, in fact, the early uh, churches in the colonies, the Puritans would come over. They had, uh, really in the decades following the Reformation, or the 1600s, so a century after the Reformation, um, their buildings were called meeting houses, and they were very simple, like this one. We're obviously more like a Puritan meeting house here than a, than a high church cathedral. But over the past few years, we have um, worked to not only beautify this sanctuary with things like new carpet and comfortable chairs and paint and even flowers, but also to bring in some of the old furniture. We have elders' chairs here on the platform. These are called elders' chairs. They remind us that God has provided us with overseers whose task it is to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. To keep watch over our souls as those who will give an account. And so I've said this before, it's not Dana and Lyman and Chad's chairs, they're just they're the elders' chairs. Reminding us that there are overseers that God has put into place to keep watch over our souls. We have a table for the Lord's Supper. It's an old table. It reminds us that we are to regularly proclaim the Lord's death until He returns by partaking in the bread and cup. We have a public copy of the scriptures, and I got out our old church Bible. It's very old and very fragile. And I got it out for this week so that we could be reminded that studying the scriptures is the central purpose of the church. 
in glorifying God, in understanding who God is. It reminds ourselves, it reminds one another that the Bible is the church's book. It is not just our individual copy of the scriptures. Then, of course, we have this this pulpit here, um, from which God's word is to be proclaimed. The pulpit is not about magnifying the preacher at all. The pulpit is about magnifying and proclaiming God's word. But each of these things, each of these pieces of furniture are merely that. They're just symbols. Um, Even this big old Bible here on the table is symbolic of the Bible that you hold in your hands, that I preach from here on the pulpit. And symbols and and symbolism is, is not a bad thing. We also have a cross on the wall reminding us of Christ's death. Symbols are all over the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. But the symbols must never, they must never replace the things that they're symbolizing. These things are just things. But they're things that point us to Christ and that are here to remind us of Christ. This is what had happened in Um, the church throughout the Middle Ages. Gradually, the Lord's Supper came to be the central focus of worship. And the reason for that is actually rooted in a a misunderstanding, in a misapplication of of today's passage that we're going to look at here. See, the church had come to believe that Jesus' words here in John chapter 6 were not symbolic or metaphorical. They were literal. They'd come to believe and to teach that in eating the bread and drinking from the cup, Drinking, you are literally eating, church members are literally eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ, and they were infused, therefore, with grace that combined with other sacraments would eventually lead to their salvation, hopefully. And in that way, the Roman Catholic Church is just like these Jews in John chapter 6. They're completely missing the point of what Jesus is teaching. This passage is one of the most intense, uh, really shocking And even if we really think about it, terrifying passages of Scripture. It is one that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as the Apostle Peter would say of other Scriptures. So John chapter 6, I want to read verses 51 through 59. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's just take a moment pray again. Lord, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And so I pray that Christ would be magnified today. 
Help us to see you, to see your son, to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This passage, um, this really is the passage. I've kind of alluded to this as we've worked through chapter six, but this is the passage that so many throughout history have claimed is about holy communion, they would say. The language of of eating flesh and, and drinking blood is said to specifically refer to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Again, uh, I've quoted J.C. Ryle before. I'm going to do it again. He's the Bishop of Liverpool in the late 1800s. I think he died in the year 1900. He wrote this about these verses. He says, Few passages of Scripture have been so painfully twisted and perverted as that to which we now read. The Jews are not the only people who have striven about its meaning. A sense has been put upon it which was never intended to bear. Fallen man, in interpreting the Bible, has an unhappy aptitude for turning food into poison. The things that were written for his benefit, he often makes an occasion for falling. So what is Jesus talking about, and, and why does he use this type of graphic language? Well, we need to understand um, that in these verses, he has again picked up the bread of life metaphor. So if you remember, the chapter opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, men, and he feeds them with five barley loaves, five loaves of bread and two fish, and the disciples gather up the leftovers, and they find out that they have 12 baskets of bread remaining. Then a little later in the chapter, the crowd comes looking for Jesus because they wanted to be fed again, he tells them. And Jesus, in, in rebuking them for, his, for their unbelief, he actually uses the opportunity to make the claim in verse 35, the central verse of the entire chapter. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the people had come to him, but they did not believe in him. They did not believe or understand his claims. And instead of clarifying and speaking in terms everyone could understand, he actually actually takes the figurative language to the next step. And all of the sudden, we're not talking about bread anymore. Now he's talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about eat and drink. And even the phrase, live forever. This has a deeper meaning than people think when they hear his words. I cannot stress how important it is for us to acknowledge that this is figurative, metaphorical language. And Jesus responds to the, to the crowd's dispute in verse 52 by making his message both harder to understand and even harder to accept. And he does so by going deeper and by laying out the implications of his statement in verse 51 when he had said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is where the metaphor gets kind of mixed. It gets kind of changed here. He switches from bread to flesh. But the flesh here is not merely a metaphor. He really is talking about his own flesh. He's talking about his body. He's talking specifically in verse 51 about his death on the cross. 
He's talking about laying down his own life, which was an actual event that actually happened. It happened on a specific day in history. Now, there are three aspects to this statement that I want to look at this morning, really verses 53 through uh, 59. Um, The three things that he talks about, flesh and blood, eat and drink, and then finally he mentions eternal life. There's much more that could be said here in this passage. We could spend time, uh, we could spend weeks going through these verses. And as I said, this passage had been controversial throughout the centuries. But this morning, we're we're just going to look at these three, these three aspects of salvation that he's talking about. And we're going to start with flesh and blood. So flesh and blood. Uh, At this point, at the end of this section, really in the final verse here, verse 59, um, verse there tells us that, that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And Jesus' words in verse 51, they were not missed by the, the synagogue leaders, by the, the Jews, the religious leaders of the day. And they responded by actually arguing with one another about what in the world he could possibly mean. Now the last time that we saw the Jews speak was in the grumbling that they were doing back in verse 41. And that grumbling was just sort of that that low rumble that goes over a crowd when they're in disagreement with whatever the speaker is saying. But here, they're actively disputing, arguing with one another. It's vocal, it's loud, it's heated. They're actually arguing with each other, it says. They're disputing with each other. And and that word for disputing, it actually means strongly arguing. These, These people are really going at it with one another. really based on verse 51 of the words that Jesus has given them. D.A. Carson, um, probably one of the best New Testament scholars today, he describes this dispute here like this. He says, any dullard could see that Jesus was not speaking literally. No one would suppose Jesus was seriously advocating cannibalism and, and offering himself as the first meal. But if this language is figurative, what on earth did he mean? And the Jews seem to quickly come to the conclusion that whatever he's saying, it's meaningless. How can this man, this is actually a derogatory term there when they ask this question in verse 52, how can this man, how can this guy give us his flesh to eat? Well, look at how he answers them. Just look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you can have no life in you. So as I said, Jesus answers them by making his message even harder to understand. And he gives them an explicit condition for eternal life. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you cannot have eternal life. So what does Jesus mean? What does he mean by flesh and blood? Well, he tells us pretty clearly back in verse 51, although there's there's a thin veil over it as he uses the word bread again. But he tells us pretty clearly he's talking about the atonement. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, this passage is not about the Lord's Supper. But when we observe the Lord's Supper, when we observe communion, we are remembering the the things that he's talking about here. Namely, we are remembering his atonement for sin. 
Now, clearly, the flesh or the body and blood of Christ, they can't be separated from each other. Flesh and blood, we use this type of phrase all of the time to refer to the, to the actual body of someone. The, their flesh and blood, they can't be separated. In the communion passages of Scripture, namely in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul quotes Jesus' words at the Last Supper, they're together, flesh and blood, and they refer to Jesus' death on the cross, both of those things together. But they each have significant individual significance. Each of them have significance on their own. So listen to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24. Paul instructs the church at Corinth and, and us, He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here he's talking about his body, his flesh. Jesus's body was killed on the cross for us. Paul writes that there to the uh, the church. We understand this. Paul is quoting Jesus talking about his own literal sacrificed body. In fact, it was not long after that last supper that he was arrested. And that he was hauled off to a couple of different mock trials. And then he was put on the cross and his life was taken from him. Or we could say he laid down his life. He's talking about his literal body. Jesus symbolically broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Uh, In that verse, Jesus makes a statement that I believe kind of best explains this concept of my body, which is for you. He says this in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. This is my body, which is for you. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ lays down his life. He lays down his flesh for his beloved. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 8 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus speaks of his his flesh throughout this passage, he's speaking of the life that he gives to free us from sin and death. He's speaking of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus breaks the bread of the Last Supper Passover meal and he says, this is my body, he's referring to his work on the cross. It's the same really in verse 53, back in verse 51, and really throughout this whole passage, the bread of life is his flesh given as a a ransom, as as a payment for sin. Later in his first letter, the epistle, 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 16, John will say this. This is much later. He will write, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then later in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now listen to this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's talking about here. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus, giving his, in giving his life on the cross, he completely satisfied the, the just and, and righteous demands of the holy God in God's judgment for sin. It means that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It means that he took our sin and carried it off and disposed of it. And it has gone as far as the east is from the west. Now Jesus is certainly saying more than this, but he's not saying anything less. And intimately connected to his flesh... Is his blood. Remember, these things cannot be separated. Again, let's go to the commands concerning the Lord's Supper and look back at this. So in 1 Corinthians 11, this time in verse 25, Paul writes, In the same way also, he, Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as I said, flesh and blood cannot be separated. And the very next verse, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, here in John chapter 6, is moving even further into the, into the what is he talking about, category for the Jews. But in terms of the atonement for sins, Remember, we haven't talked yet about what the phrase eat and drink mean, just about the flesh and blood. So in terms of the atonement for sins, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus has said. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. The author of Hebrews explains it like this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, that is the law. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So he's explaining this now. He says, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. We understand this, right? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood, the shed blood of of goats and, and lambs was necessary to enact the covenant, to ratify the covenant. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then at the end of verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 9, we read this verse. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrificing himself. His blood enacts a new and better covenant. Christ's shed blood at his, at his death at the cross, it established or it inaugurated the new covenant in the same way the, the sacrificial lambs established or inaugurated the old covenant of the law, Moses' law in the Old Testament. Again, the, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. See if this doesn't tie this all together. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13 says this. But as it is, Christ obtained a, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, and I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the covenant that Christ enacted with his death on the cross when his blood was shed. That's the covenant that we live by, that we live under. That's the covenant that we remember every time we partake in the cup of the Lord's Supper. He goes on to say, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. These are the promises of Christ that was enacted by the shed blood, the establishment of that new covenant, as I said. When Jesus speaks of his flesh and blood, he's talking about his sacrifice for the sins of those whom he promises, I will be their God and they will be my people. So what does Jesus mean, the second phrase here? What does he mean by eat and drink in these verses? If he's talking about um, the atonement, his death on the cross for sins, what does he mean by eat and drink? Again, look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Let me give you the answer and then I'll... Go back and build the case here. He's talking about faith. When he says eat and drink, he is specifically talking about faith. He, specifically, he's saying the same thing back that he did in verse 35 when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's the same thing. We looked at that verse a few weeks ago, verse 35. We saw that that comes to me. When he says, whoever comes to me, it's referring to repentance. It's turning away from our sin and, and coming to, to Christ and, and believing in him, trusting in him, and, and he becomes the, the metaphorical food and drink that we need. 
Let me show you why this is about faith. See, at, at this point, we need to look at who it is that we're talking about. Who it is that is the object of our faith. And, and Jesus does that right in this verse. He says there, it's the Son of Man. Look again, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Son of Man. Everyone understands that Jesus is claiming this title here for himself. Throughout this passage, really throughout, the, really throughout the whole chapter, but especially when he begins teaching them about the bread of life, he's using personal pronouns. He's saying me, my, mine, etc. And here he says, you've got to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. And in the next verse, he says me and my again. And the Jews, particularly these synagogue leaders here, they would have known that the Son of Man is the end times figure from the book of Daniel from Daniel's vision of the end times. This is where the title Son of Man comes from. It's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this. Daniel has just seen the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. He's seen the throne room of God, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus here in this verse is claiming to be that man, the Son of Man, the one whose Dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And at at this point, just, just let your eyes roll over this passage. Just look at the words in this passage and notice all of the references to eating and drinking or food and drink throughout these verses. Let me read it again together. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. At this point, Jesus is still, he's just, he's just explaining the meaning of verse 35 still. He's still just, he's still just talking about what it means to, to come to him and, and to believe in him. And now he's gotten much more graphic. He's even added the phrase, drink my blood. And he does this, I think, for three reasons. The first is this. 
He's forcing those who do not trust in him, do not truly trust in them. He's forcing them to show themselves. Look ahead down at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who uh, did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He's forcing the crowd to show their hands. You don't believe. I'm going to make it harder for you to believe. But secondly, he's also beginning to bring another, another Old Testament image to the forefront of the narrative. So two times in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, has proclaimed, he's made the same basic proclamation twice in John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have already established that here in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying that he is the true and better manna bread from heaven. In fact, he alludes to that again in verse 58. And then the third reason, so he's bringing this new image to the forefront of the mind, of their minds. And then the third reason Jesus gets more graphic here in his call for repentance and belief is because he's going to, he is going to tie this imagery to the supper later. But again, I want to be clear about this. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper here. But when we take communion, we look back to this through the lens of the all-sufficient death on the cross. That's the only way that this makes sense. That's the only way that this makes sense. Is that we can look at what he says here through the lens of the cross. Through the lens of the atonement for sins. So what does eating and drinking consist of? Well, Jesus actually tells us plainly. Listen to verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look back at verse 40. He says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those verses say the same thing. It's the same result. Eating and drinking consists of looking on and believing in. The Bible uses many different words or phrases to describe what Jesus is saying here. But to put it simply, this means trust and faith. It means repentance and belief. Looking on Christ and believing in Him. Coming to Christ, leaving our sin behind and putting our trust and our faith in Christ. And so just as our just as our kids, just as our children ought to look at their parents and, and believe them and trust them. Or, or as a, maybe as a military regiment it looks to their lieutenant and, and trusts their lives to him. We are to look to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to trust in him who gave his life as a ransom for many. In particular, eating his flesh means putting your trust, your faith in the one who died for your sins. We're talking here in verse 53 about salvation, about sola fide, faith alone. As it is written, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. Or Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Eating his flesh, that's what he's talking about. Trusting in, putting all of our hope and trust in his broken body, his dead body who rose again. And drinking his blood in particular 
is claiming through that same faith alone. It's claiming the promises of the new covenant. It is understanding that they have been granted by Him. There cannot be one without the other. There cannot be a a death of flesh without the blood. You cannot be a part of God's covenant people unless you have repented and believed. Eating and drinking bread and from the cup, they don't save. I need to point out here that beginning in verse 54, Jesus uses a different word for eat. In 53, he says you must eat, and in 54, he uses the word feed or feed on, really for the rest of the uh, section. This is actually a more aggressive term. It, it literally means to gnaw on, to chew on, over and over again for a long time. This is not justification from that point on. It's sanctification. It's continually feeding on Christ. There's growing in Christ is what he's talking about. This is going back over and over again to Christ's body, the church. In order to be fed from the, from the logos, the logos, the word that became flesh, It is abiding in him, verse 56 says. It is standing at the buffet line of Christ, feeding on his grace, feeding on his mercy, feeding on his justice, feeding on his love, feeding on his truth, feeding on his hope, feeding on his word, which must remain central in the worship of the church. This is how we feed on Christ, through his word. And the results of that? I always kind of run out of time near the end of my third point or however many points I have. I usually run out. But the results are life. The results are eternal life, a resurrection life, he says here several times in this passage. I will raise him on the last day, Christ promises. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me, the Son of Man promises here. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man that we feed on, that we gnaw on, that we go back to over and over and over again and and chew on. These are hard sayings. Not many even can listen to them. But the words that Christ has spoken to us here, these are spirit and life. The words that Jesus speaks here are for life. And so I just want to finish by just saying this. May God add his blessing to his word that you may understand and continually feed on Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, these are hard things to understand, and we understand that even when we look ahead in this passage, even his disciples, even the twelve, did not have any idea what he was talking about. The crowds left him. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was a madman. They thought he made no sense whatsoever. And they turned and left. And the disciples, 
who've been following him for a couple of years didn't understand it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these things. Help us to understand what it means to to come to Christ and to believe in him. To repent of our sins and to run to Christ. To turn from our sins and to turn to Christ. That we may completely consume the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would not only eat but that we would feed on. That we would come back to the the word and eat over and over and over again that we might be like Christ. That we might be reminded of your grace and your mercy, of your love toward us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he laid down his life, shed his blood, for our sins, that we might become the righteousness of God. Transform our hearts, Lord. Transform our minds. I pray that your name would be praised from our lips and our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.